This is Africa Digest. Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi and I'm in studio with Joalan Tulo as well as Nosisha Zuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The passing of laws to end child marriage resulted in blocking thousands of child marriages and enabling second chances at education for girls. Southern African governments called upon to ensure the protection and well-being of persons with albinism who are increasingly vulnerable amid the COVID-19 crisis. And the assets value of regional airliner SA Express decreased from 1.8 billion to 130 million in five weeks. Right now, though, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is uh, Joalani Tulo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The UN's top human rights body will engage in an urgent debate on systematic racism and police brutality directed at black people in the United States. The Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland, acceded to a request from the 54-member Africa group for the debate, while the bloc has circulated a hard-hitting draft resolution that would set up an international commission of inquiry into police racism and police violence in, but not limited to, the United States. Show and Bryce Pease reports. The U.S. is no longer a member of the Council after its spectacular withdrawal in 2018, citing chronic bias against Israel, but will be permitted to participate in a debate it is the subject of. The draft resolution seeks, among others, to establish a multi-year commission of inquiry into the deaths of Africans and people of African descent in the U.S. with the aim of bringing perpetrators to justice. The move in Geneva follows the outpouring of grief and frustration after the brutal death of George Floyd at the hands of a white former police officer and three colleagues in Minneapolis on May 25th. This is only the fifth urgent debate in the council, following one on the Gaza flotilla raid in 2010 and three more focused on the situation in Syria. Sudan's authorities have formed a committee to investigate the discovery of a mass grave in a southeastern district of the capital Khartoum. It is thought to contain the remains of conscripts who were killed in 1999 as they attempted to escape from the Al Alfon military camp to join their families for a Muslim holiday. The military camp was used to train conscripts during the rule of ex-President Omar Bashir, who was overthrown in April 2019. Netherlands-based radio Tama Zou reports that the conscripts were afraid of being sent to war in South Sudan. Sudan split into two countries in July 2011 after the people of the South voted for independence. But for decades, a brutal civil war was fought, was fought rather, costing the lives of 1.5 million people. 
Mali's President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita has announced that opposition leader Sumaila Sisse, who was kidnapped by suspected Islamist militants in March, is alive. The president is quoted by news agency AFP as saying in a speech that the government had proof that Sisse was alive. Sisse, the leader of Union of the Union for the Republic and Democracy, was abducted on the 25th of March while on the campaign trail ahead of parliamentary elections. The Malian army has been battling militants in the north since 2012. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has said India wants peace but will respond if provoked after 20 soldiers were killed in a clash with Chinese troops along the border. Beijing has accused India of provoking the deadly crash by launching an operation in Chinese territory. The BBC's Anbarasan Etarajan has the story. Prime Minister Narendra Modi addressed the nation a short while ago where he said the sacrifice of the soldiers will not uh, be in vain and India wants peace but it is capable of uh, giving a befitting reply if instigated. Militarily, Indian uh, forces are no match for China's power, which has you know, exponentially increased the, over the last two decades, the amount of money they spend. Also, the terrain, it is very high in the Himalayan region at an altitude of 15,000, 16,000 feet, where the Chinese troops have been staging war games for the last two years with the improved infrastructure, whereas the Indians are lagging behind in terms of both the infrastructure and technology. And finally, Kenyan investigators are investigating all do- uh, donations rather, and money given to the country to help fight the coronavirus. The investigators say they believe that millions of dollars and equipment have been stolen, even as the country continues to register a sharp rise in COVID-19 cases. This comes after local media exposed the disappearance of $2 million U.S. million worth of personal protective equipment donated by the Chinese government. Kenya has received donations from Chinese billionaire Jack Ma of IMF and and European countries, but the government has faced questions about how it has used the funds with health workers complaining of a lack of enough protective gear. So far, the country has recorded 3,727 cases of the coronavirus with 104 fatalities. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Today marks the 28th anniversary of the Boibotong Massacre. This refers to the killing of 45 people by members of the Inkata Freedom Party with the covert assistance of the apartheid government south of Johannesburg in 1992. The tragedy almost derailed negotiations towards the country's democracy and will forever remain a wound in the consciousness of its residents. Wusi Chimombe reports. Boipatong, meaning a place of hiding in the Sisutu language. But on the 17th of June 1992, there was to be no refuge for the residents of the Joe Slova informal settlement in that area. 45 of them were slain and another 40 injured when Panga and knob carry wielding men from the local Kwamadala hostel attacked mostly women and children, including a two-month-old toddler. Resident Muleleki Fantisi remembers the aftermath, even though he was still a child. Uh, there were some gunshots around the location, and we were very sad because we knew that uh, there, there would be some attack, but not clearly who was attacking us. Uh, in the morning, I went to the shops, the dust next to the street there, and then I saw it was very sadness. There were no people movement on the street, but some houses, there were people there crying, not understanding because I was still a little young, crying, there were some blasts, 
The windows were broken, doors were, were broken also. The massacre, just two years after the release of Nelson Mandela, threatened to derail the Convention for a Democratic South Africa Codesa talks. At an emergency meeting six days later, the ANC threatened to withdraw, blaming the apartheid government for being covertly behind the attack. Then Secretary Cyril Ramaphosa. We cannot tolerate a situation where the regime's control of state power allows it the space to deny and cover up its role in fostering and fomenting violence. The Buipatong massacre is one of the most chilling instances of the consequences of the actions of the FW de Klerk regime. Before the people of South Africa and the bar of international opinion, de Klerk's regime cannot escape culpability. Whether the apartheid government played a part in the attack is still a matter for debate. A criminal trial in 1993 ruled against such a claim, while the Truth and Reconciliation Commission implicated the security force. In that trial, a number of members of the Inkata Freedom Party were convicted, who were later granted amnesty by the TRC. IFP national spokesperson Nkule Komhlengwa says the Boipatong attackers acted alone without the blessing or knowledge of the party leadership in revenge for earlier attacks by ANC members on Johannesburg's East Rand. It is a simple fact of psychology and human nature that victims may eventually retaliate. And that is what happened at Boipatong. People reached a tipping point, having endured too much and spontaneous violence suddenly erupted, born out of anger, fear, and continual victimization. It was not an orchestrated attack and was never ordered by the leadership of Ingata. This fact is supported by evidence. Today, Boipatong resembles a typical South African township with little outward sign of the trauma it has endured. Outside, the Memorial and Youth Center opened in 2014. Resident Mutiki Matapo says she's angered that the media descends on the area at this time every year, and yet unemployment and hunger persist. The ANC had not responded to a request to comment on today's anniversary by the time of going to broadcast. And that report was by Bosi Chimombe. Zimbabwean hospital workers took to the streets protesting against government decision to cut June salaries at a time when the country is battling with COVID-19. There was no warning and government workers, including soldiers and police, were affected, resulting in some disgruntlement in the lower ranks. While hospital workers were protesting, soldiers were reported to be assaulting those boarding buses, uh, boarding buses to go to work in major towns and cities. More from our correspondent based in Harare, Zimbabwe, Simon Muchemwa. Hospital workers at Parininyatwa, the largest referral hospital in the country, on Wednesday downed tools while protesting against an unexplained salary cut by government. Nurses, radiographers, nutritionists and general hospital staff were some of those who took to the streets demanding answers from President Emerson Nangagwa's government. Most of those protesting revealed 
they were earning between $7,000 to $10,000, an equivalent of $100 to $130 per month, before their earnings were reduced to between $3,500 and $5,000 Zimbabwean dollars against an estimated inflation of 900%. Health professionals who spoke to the media expressed the dismay at what the government has done at a time when the country is now battling with an increase of the COVID-19 cases. Douglas Chikovu, Zimbabwe Professional Nurses Union Secretary General, had this to say. The, the, the direct confrontation on us as nurses was seen by the government when they punished our salaries, when we were expecting a, a salary increment. That has blown uh, the emotions and everything from the nurses' side. E, the way forward comes from the government because us as nurses, we are ready to deliver, but we cannot deliver on an empty stomach. Enoch Dongo, president of the Zimbabwe Nurses Association, bemoaned. We were also taken by surprise at the time where we were expecting government to increase our salaries. Instead of increasing or giving us a stable currency that we can uh, use, they have actually removed, uh, they have slashed, they have cut uh, uh, that uh, little that we were uh, earning. Zimbabwean health professionals have always been on the receiving end with government refusing to increase their monthly salaries until they started protesting. At one time last year, their protests led to the abduction and torture of Dr. Magombei, who later fled the country to seek refuge in the United States of America. Noting the challenges faced by the country, a local organization called Higher Life Foundation pledged to pay salaries and allowances to all medical personnel owing to the COVID-19. Douglas complained of the deduction of the COVID-19 allowances too. Uh, These allowances came as a result of uh, this disease and we lobbied as unions so that we can have uh, an incentive that can uh, cushion the, uh, the health workers in, uh, in fighting COVID-19. But as we can see right now, there is also anomalies in that uh, allowance. Some have been also received, so they have also punished that allowance to some members. So you can't even tell. The government is showing, the, the government is indicating left when it is turning right. So we are not very happy about the, uh, what the government is doing. Enoch Dongo urged workers to unite. It's the issue for everyone, not only nurses or only doctors, but all health workers. We, we need money. So after that, we are going to, uh, to give you the, the way forward. We don't encourage... Uh, a popcorn uh, way of doing things because the moment that we do that we are going to give uh, uh, the enemy at the moment our enemy is the employer isn't it? So we don't want to equip them or to aminate them with the ammunition so we want to be very 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 organized that's why we are going there and we come back and we chat uh, 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 a way forward together I thank you the protests come at a time when soldiers whose salaries were also halved decided to turn back home workers in every city out of frustration. In Alare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Samuel Mchemon.
National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Channel Africa Broadcasting from South Africa will continue to bring you news and current affairs during this period, whereby a 21-day lockdown is effective. We will keep you updated and informed during this period as we bring you news and current affairs from an African perspective. The assets value of regional airliner S Express has decreased from 1.8 billion to 130 million in five weeks. This is according to the uh, airliner's liquid- liquidators in a virtual briefing to Parliament's Standing Committee on Public Accounts, Scopa. The liquidators appeared before Scopa to brief it about the airliner's uh, liquidating process. The liquidators took office last month to start the process to dispose uh, of the assets of S Express. Our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Besant, tells us more. After failing to appear before a virtual meeting with SCOPA last week, the liquidators met with the committee during another virtual briefing. One of the questions that leading liquidator Aviwen Jamara had to answer related to the assets value of SA Express. When we took office, the estimated assets were quantified to be 1.8 billion. This past five weeks, in light of the COVID regulations, to an amount to be quantified at this stage to 113 million. So there's significant differences. So what asset are we dealing with now? If we had to dispose of the asset, what value are we talking? We're sitting at 113 million and we're still busy reconciling. We do have challenges regarding the reconciliation in terms of what is on the books and records and what is physically there that vest with SA Express. The liquidators and the Department of Public Enterprises faced critical questions from members of SCOPA, including committee chairperson Mkuleko Tlengwa and the EFF's Veronica Mente. There is a company, Lighthouse, who has full access to the aircrafts, repairing the, uh, the aircrafts. So if you have a third party that have access to stores, have access to aircrafts and everything, that can devalue the company assets because people can steal things. I do not know the logic behind that. You seem to still be at investigative stage about everything, um, trying to ascertain a lot of things. Of course, that should form part and parcel of the work that you are doing. But what it indicates to me is that you may also be settled then with the situation of poor record keeping which we have found in the institution. If you are taking such a long time to arrive at factual conclusions. Meanwhile, DA member of SCOPA, Alf Lees, had more questions about the interest of the seven interested parties that might want to take over SA Express. With regard to these seven, now you say, interest parties, who are they? What are they looking for? Are they looking for just the licenses? Are they looking 
to take over the airline as a whole, including its liabilities? Are they looking to take over the airline, excluding its liabilities guaranteed by government? What exactly are they looking for? The ANC's Mervyn Dirk still fails to understand why SA Express has to undergo a liquidation process. I want to hear that uh, somebody from the department can come uh, on the pep- uh, public platform and tell South Africans in plain and simple English what brought us to where we are today at at this point of liquidation. Because this asset belongs to the millions of South Africans out there. And if myself and my colleagues are are not out there, how will they understand what has brought us? And I want the South Africans to get answers from the department. While the department and the liquidators answered some questions, many still remain unanswered. Scopa has also decided to have further engagements with the stakeholders at another time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The passing of laws to end child marriage resulted in blocking of thousands of children. Uh, from getting married and enabling second chances at education for these girls. However, these gains made over the years are in jeopardy in the age of COVID-19. As part of commemorations for Day of the African Child yesterday, the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, and two other UN agencies highlight the threats posed by the pandemic and progress uh, made towards protecting women and girls from violence and harmful practices. To reflect more on the main concerns, we are now joined on the line by Julie Diallo, Program Specialist on Gender for the UNFPA, uh, Eastern and Southern Africa. Julie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for being with you this afternoon. Now, Julie, how had COVID-19 posed as a challenge when it comes to progress made towards protecting women and girls from violence and harmful practices? But, you know, I think if you look back like decades ago, it has been thinking about women's rights. So really, globally, it's in our continent. So if we look in our continent, I know we have legislation on domestic violence, recognizing that they are not comprehensive. We have made at the policy level and education level. Importantly, what we see is that there is decline in the practice of LGN families. And so if we take like a chip, we can see that. 
Unfortunately, Julie, we are struggling to hear you. Do you mind maybe trying to move around a little bit and see if we can maybe okay. try and establish a better connection? Oh, sorry. Can Hello? Hi. Hello? Hi. Hi, can you hear me better? Yes, we can hear you much better now. The, the, the connectivity. So I was saying that we, we, we see a decline in the practice of child marriage. Um, but, but the issue with COVID-19 is that really it puts it at risk all the fragile progress that we have achieved so far. So what we see now with COVID-19 is that um, lovely that at last there is a, a loss of a, a, a network, a disrupted, uh, children are not going to school, uh, due to the school closure, and 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 so this is like an impact in in the practices. So what we can see is that the current context puts a young woman and girls uh, at risk of uh, child marriage (FGM) because really community and parents are recurring to the strategy uh, uh, to to cope the current situation with COVID-19, and so uh, it really puts young women and girls at risk of uh, exploitative relationship and sexual abuse. Really, like the issue is that we have made some progress, but progress is really fragile. Like COVID-19, really put that uh, progress at risk. Now, we have seen a rise in gender-based violence in the time of COVID-19 in the news. What do you think are the underlying causes of this? So, so yes, we have seen like uh, we have rise with like really alarming number, and just I just want to share why. Uh, I was looking at data, and so if we look at Zimbabwe, for example, uh, from March to May, the national outline has recorded an overall 75% increase in GDP uh, compared to the And so what we are Julie, unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have this conversation again uh, and, and, and iron out uh, some of the problems that we are seeing, especially how UNFPA Eastern and Southern Africa is uh, trying to deal with them. Uh, that's Julie Diallo from the United Nations Population Fund, Eastern Southern Africa office. South Africa's Gauteng Department of Arts and Culture, uh, Sports, Arts and Culture, rather, has come to the rescue for informal athletes and artists in various townships across the province with a 1.6 million US dollar relief fund. This as the province continues to lend a helping hand to those negatively affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Channel Africa's Musugudi Makura reports. In a virtual briefing held last Sunday, Gauteng MEC of Sports, Arts and Culture, Bali Sope emphasized that a lot of informal athletes and artists were not able to benefit from the $9 million US dollar relief fund that was distributed by the national government last month. Sope elaborates. So the fund that we are launching is a fund that we've had to really sit within the department to get a sense of the individuals that we want to give money to, because these are people who work in what it could be termed as the informal sector. One, they are not registered. It's individuals that, if I to use a, a Zulu word or, or slang, it's individuals that are hustlers, and they work, as I indicated, within our communities, but they play a central part to the mandate of the department, because you will know that one of the things that the Premier has spoken to at the SOPA was the need for a department like ours, which is sports, arts, culture, and recreation, to work together with health. Because we appreciate that through the two departments working together, we are able to reduce what is the health bill of the province. So by keeping people healthy, by making sure that they eat properly and so forth, we're able to reduce the numbers of people that would ordinarily go towards the health sector because of illnesses such as diabetes, being overweight, etc. And so we have a very close relationship that we have with health. And so once the, because the COVID, by its very nature, is also a health pandemic, we have a great appreciation of both the social and, and economic ramifications it has. Successful beneficiaries of the fund will be entitled to 1,000 South African brands, which is 59 US dollars from July up until December. MEC Sharpe says with the winter season currently underway, the country might not be moving to a lower lockdown level anytime soon, and that informed their decision to extend the relief fund till the end of this year. Now, the foundation that we're, we have put aside, or rather the relief fund, is $28 million that will assist individuals by giving them 1000 each from July till December. Because one of the things that the health is indicating is that we won't move to the next level anytime soon. Because especially now, since it's cold, we don't, and now numbers are increasing. We can't make a determination of whether by December or not we would be out of the wave of COVID. And so just as a precautionary measure, we said, let us pay these individuals this funding from now until December so that they have something that is almost a cushion for them. There are many other, obviously, opportunities that are there. You'll know that government introduced the 350 for people that are unemployed. Social development is giving away food packs and so forth and so forth. But we felt that we should have the sector approach and it's, part of the engagements we had even with our ministry and national to say this is the fund we're going to look at because the 150 million that national had took care of individuals who you could say are more formalized and are more structured and we want to look at the ones that are really below the line and who tend to fall through the cracks the cracks as i indicated because of the nature of the work that they do MEC Sharpe explains just how athletes and artists can apply for this fund so that fund will be going out as of next week and will be we've involved various individuals within our sectors. We've already had consultations with, with SIFSA, we've had consultations with various other bodies within arts, we've had consultations with the Sporting Confederation and various other individuals 
within within sports so that they have an appreciation of what is happening but importantly are able to apply because as of next week that advert will be out and will there will be adjudicating committee made up of these different individuals that i've just indicated now who will look at the various applications as they are sent so they must one ensure that these monies are not going to individuals that are not deserving of it so we are very specific with the criteria to indicate that it must be people within our sectors that is sports and arts they must be individuals that are doing community related work or working with various individuals within the sector and so forth so it's quite specific in that regard the department has also roped in several donors to assist athletes and artists with food parcels mc Shopper took time to thank them for their contributions my parting shot is to thank our donors once again. Thank you for opening your hands and allowing for those within the sector who are less fortunate than yourselves to be able to sleep tonight with a full belly. And this is what you've been able to do. And we really could not be more appreciative of the work that you're doing. And we hope that it will be able to inspire others to do the same. And that report was by Channel Africa's Musibudi Makura. It's now time for your latest uh, news headlines. Here's Chwala Nitulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the UN's top human rights body will engage in an urgent debate on systematic racism and police brutality directed at black people in the United States. Sudan's authorities have formed a committee to investigate the discovery of a mass grave in a southeastern district of the capital, Khartoum. And finally, Mali's President Ibrahim Boubakaita has announced that opposition leader Somalia Seysa, um, who was kidnapped by suspected Islamist militants in March, is alive. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Global Peace Index has rated Zambia the fourth most peaceful country in sub-Saharan Africa, beaten only by Mauritius, Botswana and Ghana in that order. The rating also places Zambia on the 44 the 44th position globally, an increase of five points compared to the previous index. More from Hilda Akekelwa. The Southern African Center for Constructive Resolution of Disputes, SACOD, has welcomed and commended Global Peace Index, GPI, for recognizing Zambia's efforts towards keeping peace. In a statement issued yesterday, SACOD Executive Director Bonfis Chembe says the 2020 GPI indicates that Zambia and its leaders have been taking correct actions where peace is concerned. He has since appealed to Zambians to never take the peace that has been enjoyed since independence for granted, saying peace does not come by accident. In sub-Saharan Africa, Zambia is ranked as the fourth most peaceful uh, country uh, behind Mauritius, Botswana and Ghana. This aspect of peace is evidenced by the fact uh, that the 2020 GPI found uh, that levels of uh, global peacefulness in the year, in the last year, deteriorated, which presents the fourth time in the last five years that the world has experienced deterioration. It is therefore paramount that Zambia, uh, in observing 
or all the fundamentals rather that have contributed to the attainment and maintenance of peace. The fundamentals include the, include the Ubuntu culture and observance of Zambia's motto, One Zambia, One Nation. And Southern Province Minister Edify Hamogale says the rating has not come as a surprise because Zambians are very loving people, both amongst themselves and to foreigners. He says from a very long period of time, Zambia has been host to groups of people running away from conflicts in their countries while the country remained intact. Of all our eight neighbors are living peacefully with the Republic of Zambia. So that's a huge, huge indication. If you look around Africa, over resources like water, you know the story of the Nile and the dam being constructed along the Nile and several other areas of this is not happening between Zambia and any of her neighbors. So that's point number one. Secondly, the country has had peaceful transition of power. Conflicts do arise, but they are minimal. They are minimal. They are within manageable levels. Thirdly, the people of Zambia are very receptive, very warm people. I'm running a province in Zambia that receives a lot of visitors through the Victoria Falls in Livingstone. And all the visitors that I've met have confirmed to me that our people are very warm. So it's the people, it's about our neighbors, it's about our internal democracy, and it's about how we carry ourselves. But we're not perfect, but um, I think we are by and large way above average on the continent. But Opposition United Party for National Development, Musio Tunya Ward, Councillor Sikovela Sikovela, says he does not agree with the rating. He says not knowing criteria used in arriving at this conclusion, peace does not mean the absence of war. When you want to define peace, uh, it, it depends from what position you are looking at peace. But generally, peace does not only mean the absence of uh, bullets and guns. Peace is something that is psychological. Peace is something that is physical. Peace is something that is social. So when you look at it from these angles, socially in Zambia, we are not free. It is very, very difficult for me as a citizen to express myself in any view, uh, whether it's a political or whether it's an economical view, without uh, trying to choose which words to use. So freedom of expression is highly questioned in this country. We have a lot of issues in terms of corrupt-related activities. We have had a lot of fingers pointing at very notable figures in this country regarding their conduct in terms of you know, management of public resources. We are also looking at issues of development. For example, here where I am in Sotuni, issues of infrastructure are very, very serious, but we have not seen any concerted effort as government to try and improve the welfare of the people. You know, we are in a tourism city. We expected a lot of public facilities to have been put in place so that, you know, our visitors, when they come here, they should be able to be very comfortable in terms of infrastructure development. That is not there. So now, if somebody tells me that there is peace and Zambia can be ranked at such a high level, I'm wondering what uh, definition 
uh, driving at uh, in terms of peace. To me, peace means that uh, at least there must be an acceptable level of the welfare of uh, a human being, especially psychologically and physically. GPI is the world's leading measure of peacefulness for the universe. For the 2020 report and uh, through the Institute of Economics and Peace, GPI ranked levels of peacefulness among 163 independent countries and territories around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I'm Hilda Kekerwa. National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Channel Africa Broadcasting from South Africa will continue to bring you news and current affairs during this period whereby a 21-day lockdown is effective. We will keep you updated and informed during this period as we bring you news and current affairs from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors, and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary. Channel Africa. With more than 2,300 cases and 83 deaths, COVID-19 is rising in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. The city is already disrupted by years of conflict and struggling to support thousands of internally displaced people, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC. There are fears now that the virus will spread undetected among the crowded camps where maintaining distance is a huge challenge. For more on this, we're joined on the line by the ICRC's health coordinator, Anna Maria Guzman. Anna Maria, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, firstly, talk us through the displacement crisis in the city and how it might worsen this new challenge of COVID-19. Well, so uh, we have an ongoing conflict that is causing the displacement. But on top of that, we are currently uh, facing the rainy season. And this has caused flooding in parts of the country. And as a result, we are seeing new displacement in urban centers. So it did make the fight against COVID more challenging since the prevention measures are really hard to follow. And we understand people continue to be displaced, even with COVID now a serious problem in the country. What's fueling this? Well, as, as I mentioned, we in Somalia, we are facing a protracted conflict, and that usually comes with people being uprooted from their homes. And right now, with the ongoing rains and flooding, we have seen a number of, a higher number of people coming into the displacement camps. And... Uh, we are concerned that many cases are going undetected in the IDP camps. And um, 
this, also this increased number of displacements uh, is the perfect environment for infectious diseases, not only COVID, but also diarrhea or measles, which, have, which we already seen in the clinics. And just how difficult has it been for the ICRC in responding to COVID in camps and what has been achieved uh, nevertheless? Well, uh, in a country where we are facing 2 million people with, with displacement, it's extremely challenging. But together with our partners, the Family Records and Society, we have been able to reach around 7,000 700,000 displaced families. With uh, We have been providing them health education messages for them to be able to know how to prevent COVID. Uh, we have been supplying soaps, uh, water treatment tablets for, for diarrhea, and especially a brain and disinfecting the camps. But definitely more things and more things, more, there needs to be more done. And uh, share with us some of the stories you're hearing on the ground uh, with people forced to flee conflict and now having to worry about COVID-19. How are they reacting to this pandemic? Well, uh, there is uh, a a number of heartbreaking stories uh, that you can imagine because life in the IEP camp means that you're living day by day and with the restrictions of covid with the restrictions because of floods, because of the restriction of the con- uh, the security to the conflict, it is very difficult for people to meet their daily necessities. And also the stigmatization of COVID is also a big challenge because even if people are willing to take the prevention measures, the, stag- the stigmatization around this, around this topic is quite challenging. And finally, as the ICRC, what more are you hoping for to prevent a looming catastrophe, particularly in camps? Well, right now our focus is on um, uh, adverting the catastrophe by providing as much as information to the displaced families as possible, continuing distribution of soaps, hygiene kits, and water treatment tablets uh, for diarrhea. Um, and uh, we just began uh, going door-to-door, spreading the COVID prevention measures and providing um, this material to the families. Um, and we are not only targeting the community, but we are now going to household-to-household to ensure that any suspected case is really identified through the, our contact tracing um, activities, which are essential uh, in the time of COVID. All right, Maria, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. And that was Anna Maria Guzman, Health Coordinator for the International Committee for the Red Cross in Somalia. And she was on the line from Nairobi. South African governments must ensure the protection and well-being of persons with albinism who are increasingly vulnerable amid the COVID-19 crisis. This is the view of the non-governmental organization Amnesty International. Tigere Chaguta, who is the organization's deputy director for Southern Africa, has more. Persons with albinism in uh, Southern Africa generally live lives um, of fear. Uh, as Amnesty International, working with some of our partners, we have documented um, the untold suffering of persons with albinism for, for, for years. So, uh, as, we, as the region has been in this uh, time of uh, COVID-19 and responding to it, we have also noted that persons with albinism 
Um, their vulnerability has been accentuated during this time. Um, there are persons who need specific um, uh, social protection that has not been available to them, specific um, interventions uh, through the criminal justice system, and they've not been able to access those because of a number of restrictions which have been brought into effect in response to COVID-19. What is it then that needs to happen to get a, um, uh, if authorities in the region are to ensure um, that measures uh, also respond uh, to people with albinism? So just in terms of the, the health um, and other basic needs that persons with albinism should access, we are looking and calling on government in the region to ensure that as they put um, you know, responses in place, there is a special um, uh, recognition of the special needs of persons with albinism. So where there is um, food aid, where there is a need to access hospitals, we are calling on governments to ensure that uh, persons with albinism are specifically catered for. Uh, persons with albinism are not hindered from being able to, to access the services they need. Um, and we've seen across the region that, um, uh, you know, because uh, responses have been haphazard, um, there is a lot of jostling, for instance, where you know where, where people are going to to get food and water, um, and there is no special um, uh, arrangements made in those places so that persons with albinism can can be sure to you know can be able to access those things without being made to stand in the sun uh, for long periods, mm. for instance, which we know is a health um, a hazard to, to to people who have albinism. Mm. Now, as Amnesty International, have you tabled um, these concerns uh, with uh, people that uh, have the powers to to change the system in in the favour of uh, people albinism at this time? Um, and if not, what are your plans um, for that moving forward? So we we are continuing this work. Um, our calls have, have uh, been long standing. Over the years, we've been working and tabling these concerns mm. with specific governments in the region. Um, and COVID-19 is just, uh, you know, it's just a context in which um, our calls become more urgent. So we have done that. Uh, we have communicated um, through our media work. Uh, we have written to specific governments. Um, and we continue to do this. We are working with persons with albinism. Um, we are messaging uh, through various platforms. Um, and this is work that for us will, will continue. We have done it from local to regional levels. And we will certainly continue doing this time. And that was Tigere Chaguta, Amnesty International's Deputy Director for Southern Africa, on the line talking to Zukona Miso. The time is now 17.49 Central African time. Here's Nosithia Zuma with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samara. Good evening. The South African uh, Commercial Catering and Allied Workers Union, Sakau, has confirmed that it has received a letter from footwear and clothing retail giant Adcon to start with Section 189 consultations. Adcon employees this week received retrenchment notices. The group has blamed poor sales as a result of the lockdown. Adcon went into business rescue last month and reported a loss of $116 million US during the lockdown period. 
period. It owns retail stores Edgar's and Jet, amongst others. The unions are yet to meet with the CCMA and Adcon management in the coming weeks to establish how many members will be affected by the retrenchments. Mike Dau is from Sakao. Two weeks or a week ago, we have received Section 189 from Adcon. We, however, have not started engagement and we cannot confirm as to how many numbers will be retrenched. But the fact remains that, yes, indeed, we have received a Section 189 of which was scheduled for uh, sometimes this week. But, however, due to some other technicalities, we have approached CCMA to just postpone and get another date. A leading business rescue restructuring expert is urging all those involved in decision-making to contribute their opinions to the newly published SAA business rescue plan. George Nell from Corporate Business Rescue says this is the only opportunity the South African government, creditors and stakeholders will have to propose the necessary changes on the future of SAA. The airline's business rescue practitioners this week published their final plan that suggests the restructuring of SAA that could see 78% of employees lose their jobs. Nell says the plan can still be changed. Government is in for a lot of money here and would like this, really like this thing to succeed. Now, uh, going forward, the business rescue practitioners must convene a second meeting of creditors within 10 business days. That meeting can be postponed from time to time to, to consider the plan. But at the first meeting, or second meeting of creditors, they will debate the plan and everybody can make some suggestions to changes and then they can vote on that changes. Any vote on changes for the plan must be adopted by 75% of the independent creditors voting. Tunisia's investment minister says the country's economy could shrink by up to 7% this year because of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The government ended all restrictions on movement and businesses this month and will open its sea, land and air borders on the 27th of June. However, the pandemic is hammering the tourism sector, which contributes nearly 10% of gross domestic product and is a key source of foreign currency. Investment minister Slim Azabi says... According to a government study in partnership with the United Nations, the number of unemployed people in Tunisia will increase by 275,000. This would raise the unemployment rate to 21.1% in 2020, up to about 15% at the start of the year. The study expects expects the economy to shrink by 4.4%, but Azabi says the figure could rise as high as 6 or 7%. And inflation in Zimbabwe has risen to 785% as the country experiences its worst economic crisis in a decade. The coronavirus lockdown has accelerated the decline with a new local currency introduced last year, continuing to collapse. The BBC Shingai Nyoga reports. Annual inflation rose by 20% in May, while monthly inflation slowed. Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa, blames the high prices and weakening currency on economic saboteurs. Business owners, the main opposition and even Western embassies, all conspiring to bring down his government. For most people here, basic goods are spiraling out of reach. The minimum wage remains a third of what consumer groups say a family needs to survive. The opposition says the government 
government's accusations are diversionary and that poor policies have resulted in the loss of confidence and control of the market. And the UK's largest bank, HSBC, is to resume its plans to cut 35,000 jobs. New Chief Executive Newell Quinn gave the news to his 235,000 staff around the globe in a memo seen by the BBC and confirmed as authentic by the bank. The lender had originally announced the plan in February, but put it on hold amid the coronavirus pandemic. HSBC says it would try to find internal jobs for those affected, but that redundant tendencies were likely. In April, the bank had said it would hold fire on the cards, explaining that it did not want to leave staff unable to find work elsewhere during the coronavirus outbreak. The move is part of a restructuring program which aims to achieve 4.5 billion US dollars of cost cuts by 2022. Some bank some cards are likely to come from merging supports, roles in the commercial bank and investment bank. HSBC will also review less profitable areas of business. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 384.58 Nigerian Nara, 11.45 Uzona Bula, 103.30 Kenyan Shilling and 18.02 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.16 Brazilian Roll, 69.55 Russian Ruble, 75.81 Indian Rupee, 7.07 Chinese Yuan and at 17.10 South African Rands. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British Pound and 88 cents to the Euro. Looking at Commodities gold is trading at $1,716 and platinum at $803 per ounce. And the price of brand crude oil is at $38.04 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosiche Zuma. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Should you want to get in contact with us, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can WhatsApp us on plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, and you can tweet us on at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is some music. Be sure to enjoy and see you later.